Do you believe in three gods as the rabbis claim? Draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning I have not spoken in secrets, from the time it came to be I have been there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Isaiah 48.16 There's a rumor going around that the New Testament supposedly teaches a belief in three gods. To begin with, it's important to understand that this false rumor does not exist by accident. It is based on deliberate brainwashing that has been pushed for 2,000 years, and its purpose is to present the New Testament as pagan. For example, see the false statement of Rabbi Daniel Bellis on the Hidabrut website, where he claims that believers in Jesus believe there are three different gods. According to their belief, the creator of the entire universe is nothing but three gods. But no, we absolutely do not believe in three gods. God is one, as the prophet Isaiah said. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Now check this quote out. The mystery in the word Yahweh, there are three steps, each existing by itself, nevertheless they are one and are so united that one cannot be separated from the other. The same holy and ancient one appears as three heads within one, and he is the head elevated three times. The ancient holy one, described as three and also the other lights, which are delegated from his source, are included in the three. Sounds like a Christian quote. Well, it's not. This is a quote from the most prestigious book in rabbinical mysticism, straight out of the Jewish book of the Zohar. But wait, there is more. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Note that God's name appears three consecutive times. The Jewish Zohar explains the expression, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is actually three who are one. Only through faith in the vision of the Holy Spirit, the mystery of the audible voice is similar to this, for though it is one, yet it consists of three elements, fire, air, and water. The truth is that the Jewish book of the Zohar goes in great depth into the subject it calls Haraz the Shlosha, the mystery of the three about the mystery of one God with three dimensions or persons. The Zohar refers to God as of three heads, three spirits, three ways of appearance, three names, and three shades of interpretations that describe the divine nature. It would be interesting to know if Rabbi Daniel Ballas intends to accuse the Jewish book of the Zohar of being a pagan Christian book. One cannot, and probably should not, analyze the character of God as if in a laboratory trying to understand exactly who or what he is. He said in the past, I am who I am, and through Isaiah he said, My thoughts are not your thoughts. We cannot worship an infinite God that our finite mind is able to fully contain. We can never fully understand God, but it is possible to identify clues about his character throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, OT. To begin with, God is not made of matter. He is abstract yet he can manifest himself in material forms, whether it's in the form of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, or as the angel of God, or in the form of the Messiah. The Hebrew Scriptures reveal God as one who sits up above and at the same time lives in the temple. He fills the prophets with his spirit, while his glory fills the entire universe. God is infinitely complex in the forms and whereabouts in which he manifests himself. In Isaiah 48, 16, God says, Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secrets. 
from the time it came to be, I have been there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his Spirit. Is God saying that Yahweh sent himself together with his Spirit? Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. Does God speak of himself in plural form? We can go on and on, and spend long hours quoting more verses throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, from the writings of the Jewish sages, and of course from the New Testament. That all indicates that one God somehow manifests himself in three different persons. But you already got the idea. God loves the humanity he created, and has appeared to us in different ways. One of the forms in which God showed himself to us is in the form of the Messiah. He took on flesh and demonstrated his great love for us by suffering with us and for us. He sacrificed his own life on the cross so he could take our sins upon himself, so that we would not be compelled to worship him out of fear or legalistic religious duty, but in response to his love and in gratitude for what he has done on our behalf. Is Jesus just a copy of Eastern religion? Multiple gods, pagan virgin birth stories, Eastern mysticism. Do these parallel the story of Jesus, as some rabbis say? Rabbi Daniel Asor claims that the story of Jesus is a copy of Eastern stories of pagan idols, such as those found in Hinduism. The rabbi attempts to prove this by presenting similarities between Jesus and various idols or characters from Eastern religions. In order to do so, the rabbi quotes some outdated ideas from about 200 years ago, but he's unable to quote even one single modern source. Why? Because there are no such sources. Today, informed scholars understand that these ideas do not hold water. These ideas, which appeared in the 19th century, were refuted long ago some even by Jewish biblical researchers and historians due to several archaeological findings, such as the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves of Qumran. But what about all the parallels between Krishna and Jesus? Could these parallels prove that Jesus' life events were copied from other religions? If so, then Asur managed not only to dismiss the narratives of the Messiah's Gospel, but also the narratives of the Old Testament along with it, because parallels also exist between the Pentateuch and the literature of the ancient East. Does Rabbi Assur intend to tell us that just because there are similarities between the Old Testament stories and literature from Mesopotamia, Shemar, Egypt, Babel, Ashur, and Greece, that it means that Moses poached the story of creation from other religions? Or did he copy the commandments of the law from the laws of Hammurabi? Will Rabbi Assur claim that Noah is an imaginary character because of flood stories in other religions? Of course the rabbi wouldn't dare to say such things, otherwise he wouldn't be a rabbi anymore. So what is the true source of the writings about the divinity of Jesus? If the rabbi had handled the Gospels with minimal academic integrity, he would have understood that the writers of the New Testament came to these conclusions based on the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. They weren't even acquainted with Eastern philosophies. Professor Benjamin Sommer, a Jewish scholar who specializes in Old Testament research, wrote a book dedicated to the subject of God's revelation to men in the flesh and based on the Old Testament. He writes, This study forces a re-evaluation of the Jewish attitude toward Christianity. Some Jews regard Christianity's claim to be a monotheistic religion with grave suspicion, both because of the doctrine of the Trinity, how can three equal one, 
and because of Christianity's core belief that God put on flesh, meaning took bodily form for himself. Biblical Israel knew very similar doctrines, and these doctrines didn't disappear from Judaism after the biblical period. Professor Daniel Sommer, The Bodies of God and the World of Ancient Israel, page 135. Or to put it simply, the Jewish professor admits that the idea of God revealing himself to humanity as a man in the flesh is actually a biblical Jewish concept. Rabbi Daniel Asor is trying to compare Jesus to pagan gods like Horus, Attis, Krishna, Dionysus and Mithra. According to Asor, they were also born on December 25th, were born to virgins, had twelve disciples, performed miracles, were crucified to death and resurrected after three days. But the New Testament doesn't claim that Jesus was born on December 25th. Actually, the assumption is that Jesus was born during the Feast of the Tabernacles, Sukkot. And in any case, none of these gods were born on December 25th, and none of them had twelve disciples. For example, in the Persian version, Mithra had one disciple, Verena. In the Roman version, he had two disciples. But even if we add them together, one plus two equals three, not twelve. None of the characters mentioned were born to virgins. For example, while Attis was in the womb of his mother, he turned from a fruit, a pomegranate to be exact, into a man, and it doesn't say that his mother was a virgin. Krishna was the eighth child by his mother Devaki, so she definitely couldn't have been a virgin. The only idol whose story is linked with a virgin birth is Mithra, but pay attention to the words of Professor Yamutsi, a Japanese researcher and historian who specializes in Mithraeum religion. We can find the earliest real Mithra at the beginning of the 2nd century AD. Most of the evidence we have about Mithra originates to the 2nd, 3rd and 4th centuries AD. There is a fundamental flaw in the theories that Mithraism affected the beginning of Messianism and of Christianity. Professor Yamusi, Did you get it? Mithra's virgin birth story is the one that was copied from the New Testament and not the other way around. None of these gods were crucified to death on a cross and resurrected after three days. Attis, for example, died next to a tree, but he wasn't crucified, nor was he resurrected. Krishna was shot to death by a hunter who mistook him for a deer, and he was not resurrected. There is one version among many which was created during the 4th century AD that suggests the theory where Dionysus was crucified. But this, of course, was long after the time of the New Testament, and in any case, he was not resurrected. Additionally, regarding the subject of death and resurrection from the dead, one can find critical differences between Jesus and the idols. These idols are not described as those who willingly gave their lives as an atoning sacrifice for sins, but rather they died as a result of a hunting accident, castration and other injuries, not as a result of sacrificial love for another. And as for the miracles, while it was claimed that some of them could perform miracles, none of their miracles compared with the miracles of Jesus. They didn't raise people from the dead. They didn't raise people from the dead, didn't turn water into wine, didn't walk on water, didn't heal lepers, didn't open the eyes of the blind, and didn't do the miracles Jesus did. Therefore, it is an interesting fact that even the Talmudic rabbis recognize and document the fact that Jesus and his disciples performed supernatural wonders and miracles. It is also important to understand that many people in history had similar sayings, but it doesn't turn them into idolaters or even necessarily into copycats. Philosopher Ron Nash During the period running roughly from 1890 to 1940, 
scholars often alleged that the early Christian church was heavily influenced by such philosophical movements as Platonism and Stoicism and other pagan religions or Hellenistic movements in the world. Allegations of early Christianity's dependence on its Hellenistic environment began to fade in publications of biblical and classical scholars, largely as a result of a largely as a result of a series of scholarly books and articles written in an effort to refute them. Today, most informed scholars regard the question as a dead issue. The earliest church from the first century until Constantine was arguably more influenced by the teachings of the apostles than by other philosophical influences. The rabbi is counting on the likelihood that you will simply believe his lies and won't bother to check the facts for yourselves. No notable historian or biblical scholar has made such claims for a very long time, but all this doesn't prevent Rabbi Asor from using these outdated arguments in an attempt to hide Jesus from you. What does it mean that God has a son? Isn't that a pagan concept? And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob for ever, and his kingdom will have no end. Luke one thirty one to thirty three. Did God have intercourse, go into labor, and deliver the Son of God? Of course not. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the angels who partake in the heavenly and spiritual nature of God, in contrast to the fleshly and earthly nature of us human beings, are referred to as sons of God. At times, God refers to the people of Israel as sons. The kings of Israel are also called sons of God. Is it any wonder then? That the King Messiah, the Most High and the ideal representative of God, when he arrived from within the people of Israel, is called the Son of God. The Messiah is not supposed to be an ordinary man like all other men, but God's incarnation into humanity. Therefore, his birth should also be supernatural and extraordinary, as a sign from God. The Hebrew Scriptures show that Messiah would be the Son of God. The Qumran scrolls, which were found at the Dead Sea, Were written during the third century B.C. Scroll 4Q246 describes the understanding with Judaism during the era of the Essenes that the Messiah was to be the Son of God. The Jewish Essenes based their expectations on descriptions found in the Hebrew Scriptures. They lived hundreds of years before the time of Jesus and the New Testament, so they cannot be accused of being pagan Christians. So, what led them to believe that the Messiah would be the Son of God? In Proverbs thirty, the following questions are presented: Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. The chapter lays out Agur's conclusions. Proverbs thirty is dedicated to rebuking the two boys, Ithiel and Yukel. He asks them five rhetorical questions, each of which has the same answer as the sixth and last question: Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established the universe and preserves the laws of nature? What is his name? The answer to these five rhetorical questions is, of course, 
God. But then Agur reaches the climax, his sixth and last question, whose answer he previously defined as not requiring supernatural knowledge. Previously, in verse 3, he said, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Proverbs 33 Then what is this deeply mysterious and special question of Agur in Proverbs 34? What is his, God's son's name? Surely you know. According to Agur, it's not that difficult to know the answers to the rhetorical questions. But can the reader give the answer to the last question? The answer to this riddle is hiding in the Holy Scriptures, and this answer leads us to the Son of God, the Messiah. Jewish sages agree that this Son of God is the Messiah. The way the Jewish sages understood this will require a good measure of attention. From the book Minat Eliyahu, which quotes from Yalkut Mishli, explaining how the anticipated answer can be found. Who has descended to heaven and come down is the Holy One. Blessed be His name. For God rose up with a shout and came down on Mount Sinai. And He answers, What is His Son's name? Surely you know. Meaning, so you will study and understand what His name is, who is called Moses, after the name of Metatron, the minister of the face. According to the Jewish book Zohar and the literature of the Jewish sages, Metatron is the minister of the world, a representative with absolute divine embodiment. Metatron holds the characteristics of God himself. He is the highest entity in the heavenly hierarchy. The Jewish Zohar describes that just like God himself, Metatron also sits on God's holy throne while he is wearing God's skin. He is even called the little God and on his head the crown with words by which the universe was created. The New Testament is consistent with the Jewish scriptures. Hundreds of years before the book of Zohar was written, John describes Jesus in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The book of Zohar describes Metatron's character and nature as one who is dressed in God's image, as God's representative to his creation. Conveniently, the Jewish sages invented him as a substitute for Jesus, whom they rejected. If this is not clear yet, don't worry. The concept of Metatron will be explored again in more detail in chapter 11. Why Messiah must be God. Son of God is ancient of days, is Messiah. The Hebrew scriptures make use of the term son quite often to describe those from the sons of Israel who obey and follow God. In the New Testament as well, the believers in Jesus are called sons of God. Therefore God has many sons. But while the kings, the angels, and the sons of Israel were adopted by God as sons, the Son of God was not adopted. He always existed. He is eternal. The Son of God is the way in which the Creator of the universe reveals Himself to His creation. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophet Daniel wrote that the Son of God will come in the clouds of heaven. That means in a supernatural way. And he describes His eternal nature as ancient of days. Daniel 7.9 The prophet Micah says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah 5.2 In Isaiah 9.6, God says, 
for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. It is interesting that God is speaking of himself in plural form and speaks of a child, but not just any child, a unique child, a child who receives the names of God. Wonderful counselor means that he has supernatural knowledge. Mighty God indicates that he will take part in the very nature of Almighty God himself. Everlasting Father speaks not only of his eternal nature, but equates him with God the Eternal Father. Prince of Peace means he himself is the definition of peace. Anyone who would like to receive spiritual peace will have to go through this Son of God. Anyone, anyone who would like to receive spiritual peace will have to go through this Son of God. Psalm 2 is another prophecy of the Messiah, as even the Jewish sages admit. Both Rashi and the Radak attributed Psalm 2 to the King Messiah, but verse 7 needs prayerful attention. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. God says to the Messiah that he is his son. Then at verse 12 God commands, Kiss this son, meaning to worship and bow to him. Isn't that interesting? These verses refer to the Messiah, who in contrast to David, who ruled over a small group of people and not over all the Gentiles, the Messiah will rule over the entire creation. In this passage as well, the Son of God is the Messiah. Now the interesting commentary in this section found in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sukkah, Chapter 5, will demand even more attention. To the Messiah, son of David, who is destined to be revealed speedily in our days, the Holy One, blessed be he, will say, Ask something from me, and I shall give it to you. So it is said, I will tell of the decree. This day have I begotten you. Psalm 2.7 Ask of me, and I will give the nations for your inheritance. When he sees the Messiah, son of Joseph, killed. So even the Babylonian Talmud attributes the Son of God identity to the Messiah. In conclusion, Son of God is the name for the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures. To worship and praise the Son of God is the same as to worship and praise God. All this stands in absolute contrast against the pagan mythologies in which one God connects with a goddess, and together they produce a son. The term Son of God is a biblical and scriptural term intended to represent the way God comes to earth and reveals himself to human beings in the image of the Messiah. Yet it comes as no surprise that many rabbis even today would attempt to gloss over those who believe in Jesus as idolaters and pagans. Virgin Birth, Fairy Tale or Biblical Prophecy The word Alma appears in the Old Testament seven times and the meaning is always a young, unmarried girl. The New Testament declares that, according to the Old Testament prophecy, Jesus was born in a supernatural manner. His mother was a virgin. This is based on Isaiah 7.14, where it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Rabbi Joseph Mizraki tried to challenge the New Testament's claim, saying never in history did anyone interpret the word Alma as virgin. 
The truth is that many Jewish scholars, including Rashi, interpreted the word Alma as virgin several times, as will be explained. But the rabbis say that the concept of the virgin birth is pure paganism. Do they believe that God is powerless to cause a virgin woman to conceive a child by means other than intercourse? The word often translated as virgin batula in the Bible can actually refer to a married woman as well as to an unmarried woman, but the word alma refers to a young and specifically unmarried woman. According to the culture and to God's commandments during biblical times, a young girl who never married would be presumed to be chaste. Therefore, the use of the word alma rather than batula in this verse and prophecy regarding the birth of the Messiah actually confirms the fact that the Messiah was supposed to arrive through a miraculous birth. An essential doctrine such as the virgin birth cannot be grounded in a single verse, so it's important to understand what is happening in the context of this important chapter. The Context of the Prophecy Isaiah 7 begins with a description of King Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Unlike his father, Ahaz didn't walk by faith in the ways of the Lord, but was a wicked ruler and idol worshipper. He worshipped Baal and even offered his own sons as a sacrifice to his gods. His neighbors were no better than him. In Aram, King Ratzin reigned and in Samaria, Pika, son of Remilia, was the king of Israel. These two kings wanted to join with Ahaz and his kingdom of Judah to form a defense treaty against the king of Assyria, who at that time had begun a campaign of conquest but Ahaz refused to join them. So, in response, the king of Aram and the king of Israel threatened to go to war against Judah. Their intention was to pull down Ahaz and put a puppet king in his place. Since Ahaz didn't trust in God, he knew that he had no chance of winning on his own, and turned to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser III, to beg for help. Along with the request, he also sent money and gold. Ahaz, a king from the house of David, was supposed to ask for help from the god of his fathers, but as in so many other cases like this, this story shows us that whoever puts his trust in people instead of God is destined for disappointment. The armies of Aram and Israel came up against Judah and besieged Jerusalem, but conquering the city was a challenge due to the fortifications which were built there back in the days of Uzziahu, Ahaz's grandfather. Because Ahaz failed to consult God, God sent the prophet Isaiah, along with his son Shir Jashub, to Ahaz, to bring him words of encouragement. The purpose of the prophecy was to remind Ahaz and his people that the lives of all people are in God's hands, and that everyone should believe and trust in him. Isaiah came to Ahaz while he was observing the besieging enemies, and said, These two smoldering stumps of firebrands. The prophet describes Ratzin, king of Aram and Pekah, son of Remilia, king of Israel, as powerless. In God's eyes, they are no more than a burning end of a tail, letting off smoke. Isaiah prophecies in verses 7-9 to that the plan of the two kings where they planned to kill Ahaz and set up a puppet king in his place would fail. Ahaz, king of Judah, is seeing right in front of him the armies of Aram and Israel who are planning to destroy him. Yet in the face of all this, the prophet Isaiah promises Ahaz that they will fall. The prophecy was fulfilled sixty-five years later. The king must have thought, How will this help me sixty-five years from now? I need a solution now. In verses 10 to 11, God knew the king's thoughts and made a proposal in order to encourage him. 
Ask a sign of the Lord your God, Isaiah 7.10. In verse 12, King Ahaz, who did not esteem God but worshipped idols, answered God sarcastically. Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Isaiah 7.12 God was willing to give King Ahaz a sign in order to inspire him to instill faith in him, but the insincere and hypocritical response of Ahaz proved the depth of his wickedness and contempt for God. He knew very well that if he asked for a sign that would come to pass, he would need to repent and change his ways. He wanted to keep the power and control in his hands. This response angered God. Now the prophet Isaiah turns from Ahaz to the people, to the entire house of David, and says to them, Therefore the Lord himself will give you, you all plural, a sign. Isaiah 7.14, Emphasis Mine Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, so God, by his own initiative, will give the people a sign. When would it happen? In the next verses, we learn that this will be a difficult period for the people of Israel. The prophet indicates that he will eat curds and honey. Sounds good? Not in biblical times. Curd is a byproduct of milk, and as for honey in those days, people needed to go into the woods on a difficult search for beehives. This means that it would be during a time of hardship and deprivation. And indeed, Jesus was born in a time when the people of Israel were sighing under the Roman occupation. He knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Isaiah continues to describe the promised son from the Alma as Emmanuel. He will be good and perfect. He will refuse evil and will choose only what is good. Now it is revealed why God asked Isaiah to bring his young son, Shear Jashub, with him. At this point, the prophet Isaiah turns back to the king Ahaz, points to Shear Jashub and says, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. That means that before Isaiah's son knew how to discern between good and evil, the two kings who were so feared by Ahaz and the people of Judah would be removed from the earth. Sure enough, within two years, those two kings met their death. To understand Hebrew prophecy is to understand that it contains patterns and parallels that can repeat throughout history in partial fulfillments until all the signs are in place for the ultimate fulfillment. The example of Isaiah's son was a partial fulfillment that pointed ahead to the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. The Meaning of the Word Alma now that more understanding has been unlocked on what is happening in chapter 7, let's go back to the meaning of the word Alma in the Old Testament. In order to make a decision about the meaning of any word, it's necessary to examine the context in which it appears, as demonstrated above, and then compare it to all the other places where it appears. The word Alma appears in the Old Testament seven times, and the meaning is always a young unmarried girl. In Genesis 24, Abraham's servant Eliza comes to Nahor and prays that God will help him find the right wife for Isaac. There, Rebekah is described. A young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden, Alma, whom no man had known. Later, Eliza refers to her as the Alma. In Exodus 2, we are told that Pharaoh's daughter pulled Moses out of the water. Moses' sister, Miriam, stood at the distance and watched the event. Then she ran to Pharaoh's daughter and offered to find a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby for her. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go! 
So the girl Alma went and called the child's mother. Miriam's description in verse four testifies that she was a young girl, unmarried, as she still lived with her parents. In Psalm sixty-eight twenty-five, virgins Alma plural playing tambourines are singular women who took part in the procession accompanying the king to the holy place. Proverbs thirty nineteen to twenty, the way of a man with a virgin Alma. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, "I have done no wrong." The author says that a man who intentionally leads the way with a virgin in sexual relations is like an adulteress who intentionally leads men astray but doesn't admit her sins. In Song of Songs one, Solomon's bride praises him while she says that young women, Alma plural, who are looking for a husband, are attracted to him as a man who is about to marry her. In Song of Songs six, three categories are mentioned of women who lived in the king's palace: queens, concubines, and young women, Alma plural. The young women, Alma plural, were there to serve the queens and were kept under purity laws, which lasted an entire year. They had to be virgins and to marry eventually. Therefore, the Old Testament always uses Alma for an unmarried woman who is also a virgin. Another question that must be considered is how the word Alma was understood in ancient Judaism. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament made by seventy Jewish scholars long before the time of Jesus, and they translated the word Alma in Isaiah seven fourteen to mean virgin. The Peshitta, a Syriac translation from Hebrew undertaken in the second century C.E., also translated Alma as virgin, as did the Vulgate's translation into Latin. The Jewish biblical scholar Dr. Fruchtenbaum writes that the rabbis quote Rashi as someone who interprets the word Alma as a young woman, and concedes that so does Rashi consider the word in Isaiah seven fourteen to refer to a young woman rather than a virgin. However, Fruchtenbaum points out that it's easy to understand why Rashi would take a different position in this particular sense. He was involved in polemical debates against Christians, and therefore he took an opposite position to the one which had been accepted until his time in order to try and disprove Jesus' messiahship. In fact, he took a different position to the one that he himself held in a different case. Rashi didn't always interpret the word Alma as a young woman. This word also appears in the Song of Songs, and in these verses he interpreted, and in these verses he interpreted Alma as a virgin. Moreover, Rashi himself indicated that other Jewish scholars producing biblical commentary in his time also interpreted the word Alma in Isaiah seven fourteen as a virgin. And it is important to note that the ancient Jewish sages also held a belief that the Messiah wouldn't have a biological father. Here is what they taught. The Redeemer, whom I shall raise up from among you, will have no father. Genesis Rabbah of Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan.